0: Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Today's program is a follow-up to our newsletter topic, Improving Digestive Capabilities in Nutritionally Compromised Patients with CF. Joining us today is that issue's author, Dr. Stephen Friedman, Chief of the Division of Translational Research and Director of the Pancreas Center at Boston's Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from ADVI, Gilead Sciences Incorporated, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Learning objectives for this audio program include assess exocrine pancreatic insufficiency and its effects on nutritional status, discuss strategies to improve nutritional status in patients with pancreatic insufficiency, and explain the reasons for inadequate response to pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy. Dr. Friedman has indicated that he has served as a consultant and received grant funding from Alcresta. He has also indicated that there will be no reference to unlabeled or unapproved uses of drugs or products in his presentation. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the cystic Fibrosis Review, and I want to thank you, Dr. Friedman,
1: for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be part of this.
0: Your newsletter issue, Dr. Friedman, presented recent findings about how early malnutrition impacts cystic fibrosis comorbidities and mortality, the importance of early testing for pancreatic insufficiency, and how intestinal abnormalities can limit the effects of PERT. Today, I'd like to focus on how that information can be applied in clinical practice. Uh, so if you would, doctor, please start us off by describing a patient's situation.
1: A six-month-old infant with CF diagnosed through newborn screening at a fecal last phase of 120 micrograms per gram of stool at three months of age. However, she's not gaining weight as expected.
0: Let me start off with a very basic question, Doctor. From a diagnostic perspective, is this patient pancreatic insufficient?
1: So that's a great question. Fecal last phase values greater than 200 micrograms per gram of stool is normal values less than 100 micrograms per gram of stool is considered abnormal and it's a gray zone between 100 and 200. So this patient would technically not be absolutely pancreatic insufficient. What's important based on a recent article by O'Sullivan and colleagues in Journal of Pediatric as reviewed in the newsletter is that a single fecal last elastase value may not be sufficient to truly diagnose exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. So it's important to have a follow up by at least nine months of age and in this case sooner if this patient with CF is not gaining weight. It's important to remember that other factors contribute to poor nutritional outcomes and that includes intestinal abnormalities. We know that loss of normal CFTR gene function not only affects the pancreas but also has an impact on intestinal epithelial cells and thus can affect the ability of an infant to absorb those critical nutrients. In addition, as I'll discuss a little bit later, it's important to rule out other potential factors that result in increased energy demand, such as an occult lung infection or other abnormality.
0: So should this patient be receiving PERT? And if so, what would her ideal dosing be?
1: It's clear that newborn screening is having many important outcomes in patients with CF in part because of earlier strategy to improve nutritional outcome. As to whether she should receive PERT based on this fecal last day, it's not unreasonable to begin PERT and also to repeat fecal last days to be sure that she's truly exocrine pancreatic insufficient. A recent article by Haupt and colleagues in Journal of Pediatrics, as referenced in our newsletter shows that, in fact, it can be difficult to achieve the optimal dosing of pancreatic enzymes. However, another article reinforces what's recently been published in the literature, that in fact, if you can improve nutritional outcomes, that this has many long-term benefits on both morbidities, including lung disease, as well as mortality.
0: So, doctor, this baby is only six months old. Is it really so important to optimize nutritional status so early in infancy?
1: Ever since the first description of cystic fibrosis by Dorothy Anderson, we know that pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy is truly life-saving. There are now several papers that have shown that appropriate nutritional status, especially as early as four years and perhaps earlier, in fact, through newborn screening has long-term ramifications. We know from the article by Yen et al in Journal of Pediatrics that is in our newsletter, that if you look at weight for age at age four, that if you're in the less than 10th percentile, then you will have more pulmonary exacerbation, impaired glucose tolerance tests, increased risk for CF-related diabetes, and a shorter survival. If instead, you're at the highest percentile, 50th or greater, that these patients had improved lung function, fewer exacerbations, with a better survival. This, in conjunction with several other recent articles, all illustrate that the sooner appropriate nutrition can be provided, and that includes ability to absorb and, importantly, grow as expected, that these patients will have better health outcomes. We can't be sure whether or not the patients that tend to grow better maybe they just have milder disease, but when you control from multiple factors, including for the CFTR gene mutation, there is still a clear impact of better nutrition on long-term outcomes.
0: Well, thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Stephen Friedman from Beth Israel Deaconess in Harvard Medical School in just a moment.
2: Hello, I'm Megan Ramsey, nurse practitioner and clinical coordinator for adults at the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I am one of the program directors of e-Cystic Fibrosis Review. These podcast programs will be provided on a regular basis to enable you to receive additional current, concise, peer-reviewed information through podcasting, a medium that is gaining wide acceptance throughout the medical community. In fact, today, there are over 5,000 medical podcasts. To receive credit for this educational activity and to review Hopkins policies, please go to our website at www. eCysticFibrosisReview.org. This podcast is part of eCystic Fibrosis Review, a bi-monthly email delivered program available by subscribing. Each issue reviews a current literature on focused topics important to clinicians caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for Physicians and by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for Nurses. Subscription to E. Cystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge, and nearly a 1,000 of our colleagues have already become subscribers. The topic-focused literature reviews... Help them keep up to date on issues critical to maintaining the quality of care for their patients. For more information, to register to receive E Cystic Fibrosis Review without charge, and to access back issues, please go to www.eCysticFibrosisReview.org.
0: Welcome back to this E Cystic Fibrosis Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, I'm managing editor of the program. Our guest is Dr. Stephen Friedman from Harvard Medical School and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. And our topic is improving digestive capabilities in nutritionally compromised patients with CF. We've been looking at how some of the new information Dr. Friedman discussed in his newsletter issue can be applied in the clinic. Uh, so, if you would, doctor, please bring us another patient
1: situation. A 17 year old girl with cystic fibrosis started her first year of college. She'd been doing remarkably well with minimal lung disease few pulmonary exacerbations, with stable weight. However, at college, three months into her first semester, she begins to develop weight loss and calls you.
0: Uh, Doctor, the possible causes of this patient's weight loss, I I suspect there's a fairly long list, but which are the most likely?
1: There are several possibilities. The first, and usually foremost, is noncompliance with pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy. In part, because of the burden of the number of capsules an individual has to take, especially at college, around your friends and colleagues, not unusual that patients won't want to take what's been recommended. In addition, because of body habitus and their perception of what they look like, especially women with CF, it's not unusual that they will scale back the amount of pancreatic enzyme capsules that they're taking in order to lose weight can fit in more with their friends. In addition, there's a number of other GI comorbidities that needs to be considered in patient with weight loss in this setting. First is potentially lactose intolerance, so unrelated to CF. Another one is celiac disease, which occurs in approximately 1% of the population in the United States. There is a suggestion that, in fact, celiac disease may be more frequent in patients with CF. Another possibility includes small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Breath tests generally are not very sensitive or accurate in patients who have known lung disease, including from CF, and therefore, based on symptoms, occasionally empirical trials of an antibiotic might be warranted. Another possible cause includes inflammatory bowel disease. There are earlier publications that suggest that Crohn's disease may be more common in patients with cystic fibrosis, and thus, in the right clinical context, a further evaluation may be needed. There could be changes in exercise activity. Again, going away to college, perhaps more exercise, and that might be associated with developing weight loss. Lastly, a careful diet history is important to see whether or not there are specific dietary changes that might have led to weight loss. Not infrequently, it's difficult to maintain 100 grams of fat consumption per day, which is the standard recommended dietary fat intake for patients with CF.
0: Is it possible her weight loss might suggest worsening lung disease or possibly an occult infection?
1: Absolutely. Anyone who's losing weight who has cystic fibrosis needs to be further evaluated. We know that having any type of infection increases energy demand and can be associated with weight loss. And a careful history, as well as potentially further testing, needs to be done. There was a wonderful review back in 2000 by Paul Penchars and Peter Dury on the pathogenesis of malnutrition and cystic fibrosis and its treatment. And what they did is they broke down the pathogenesis of energy imbalance in CF into three areas. The first is pancreatic intestinal or biliary abnormalities as a result of loss of normal function of CFTR. And this leads to increased losses. So whether it's pancreatic insufficiency, whether it's an intestinal defect, the lack of appropriate absorption, or changes in bile salt secretion affecting my cell formation, All of this leads to increased losses from the gut. The second aspect is that perhaps as a result of loss of CFTR, that there's a cellular defect that results in increased resting energy expenditure and driving increased need. And the third area is decreased intake. This can be iatrogenic. This can be psychogenic. This could be from GI symptoms, so anorexia, nausea, vomiting. We know overall that energy deficits, irrespective of the three areas I just went through, these energy deficits are magnified in the setting of any catabolic process, catabolic process being an infection, especially lung disease. And as a result of exacerbation of the lung disease and CF, increased use of respiratory muscles, immune dysfunction, and all of this drives increased energy expenditure and hence can lead to weight loss if not appropriately diagnosed and effectively treated.
0: With all that said, Dr. Friedman, what would your next steps with this patient be?
1: I would have a frank conversation with her. I first ask her in a non-threatening way, is she being compliant with pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy? Acknowledging the difficulties in taking so many capsules with each meal and that you're here to help her and not be confrontational. Based on the response to that, then you should talk about the importance of maintaining pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy at the doses you recommended if she's not able to be compliant. But it's, what's important is that to have this conversation where you're in a partnership with her as opposed to just telling her what the dosing should be. You can emphasize why weight loss can have such a deleterious effect overall on her CF, putting her at risk of pulmonary exacerbation and infection, affecting many other aspects potentially of CF, including potentially long-term outcomes. If she's compliant, I would then explore, could this be something related to diet, to lactose intolerance? Does she have symptoms of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, bloating, abdominal distension, perhaps looser stools? Could she have celiac disease? If that's not clear, then a TTG, IgA blood test should be a pain. And then if she's still not better, then probably she does need to be seen and evaluated in your office. As I mentioned earlier, it's important to go through diet To see if she's able to be compliant with consumption of 100 grams of fat per day, especially living away at college, it may not be so feasible to maintain those dietary recommendations. Lastly, it's possible that she could have certain types of infections, whether it's bacterial or possibly Giardia, but generally that presents with loose stools in the setting of weight loss.
0: Uh, Dr. Friedman, let me ask you to focus on the reasons behind the sometimes inadequate response to PERT therapy. In talking about this patient, for example, you noted that the first thing to investigate when a patient is losing weight or failing to gain weight is PERT compliance. Now, we know that the pill burden of a PERT regimen is difficult for many patients. So my question to you is, do you feel that compliance is the primary reason for the lack of response in some patients taking PERT, or or is it something else?
1: That's a great question. It's actually more than compliance. All currently FDA-approved pancreatic enzymes are porcine-based. Unfortunately, these are not as effective as our own human endogenous pancreatic enzyme. In addition to the pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy not being very effective, there's a number of other factors specific to the CF gut that's a problem. First of all, we know that the pH optimum generally has to be 6 or greater for the enteric coating of these porcine pancreatic enzymes to be dissolved. A paper by Gelfand and Associates in Digestive Disease Sciences, which is discussed in our newsletter, showed that, in fact, alkalinization is impaired in the proximal small intestine of patients with CF based on pH capsule study. In addition, we know that this lack of alkalinization of the proximal intestine in patients with CF affects bile salts being able to form effective micelles. That would result in decreased fat absorption. In addition, we know that this lack of alkalization also decreases mucus unfolding, leading to increased viscosity, affecting mucosal integrity, nutrient assimilation, and also predisposes to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. As a result, in addition to the issue of compliance, both these relatively ineffective porcine pancreatic enzymes, as well as the milieu in the gut with this lack of alkalinization, all together is the perfect storm. As a result, this limited effective digestion of what's taken in from the diet, and then in conjunction with the CFTR-related intestinal defects, this lack of effective absorption together frequently results in the malnutrition that's so characteristic of patients with CF.
0: What can you tell us about the ongoing research to address these issues?
1: This can be divided into three groups. The first is research on new enzymes. Ideally, we'd want enzymes that are active across a wide range of pH and thus not affected by the lack of alkalinization that occurs in the intestine in the setting of CF. We also want enzymes, ideally, that aren't dependent on bile salts for maximal activity. We'd want them not to be affected by hydration status. Generally, microbial-based pancreatic enzymes, including proteases and lipase, would fit that bill. These are generally active over a wide pH range, do not need an enteric coating to maintain stability, and are not generally dependent on bile salts. There have been extensive studies on a combination of microbial-based lipase, protease, and amylase, further testings ongoing. In addition, microbial enzymes, by being more effective, would also mitigate the pill burden that's so problematic in CF. It would be ideal if instead of taking five to nine capsules with each main meal and two to four, as an example, with each snack, if one or two capsules would be sufficient can be more effective than what's currently available. In the second category, there's now research that's begun on ex vivo pancreatic enzyme digestion. The notion here is could we have essentially an ex vivo exocrine pancreas, a pancreas on a stick that would allow us to dissolve fat and perhaps protein in any kind of liquid meal outside the body and pre-digesting so that no enzyme has to be taken by mouth. There's currently ongoing research studies for this type of ex vivo pancreatic enzyme that are, again, based on microbial-based lipases. This potentially would be of enormous benefit, especially in patients who are receiving tube feeding in the setting of severe CF malnutrition. Currently, there are no FDA-approved pancreatic enzymes that can be effectively given or mixed with the enteral substrate given as a tube feed. Not unusually, patients are told to take pancreatic enzyme capsules before a tube feed has begun and then after, but we know that's probably not very effective. Studies are about to begin looking at whether an ex vivo cartridge with microbial immobilized lipase would allow more efficient digestion of a tube feed and hence improve nutritional outcomes. The third group is whether or not we can provide better nutritional sources. Up till now, the recommendations have been to have patients with CF consume 100 grams of fat per day. We know that a 100-gram fat diet per day is associated with better outcomes compared to a low-fat diet. However, it's now time to focus on the types of fat. For example, we know that omega-6 or N6 fatty acids are pro-inflammatory while N9 and especially N3 fatty acids are anti-inflammatory. Thus, the types of fat, not just the amount of fat, may have important outcomes in the morbidity and perhaps even the mortality in patients with CF. In addition, as highlighted in the article by Grolo and colleagues in Journal of Cystic Fibrosis discussed in our e-newsletter, a 12-month study of a supplementation called Limixor which is a lysophosphatidylcholine-rich structured lipid matrix, did increase caloric intake in the patient. Thus, it may be that very specific nutritional additive may truly impact the health of our patients. What was interesting and exciting about that study was that simply increasing caloric intake by 114 calories per day improved growth, as well as resting energy expenditure, and also perhaps at other nutritional impacts. Thus, on the horizon, we're going to see changes in all these three spheres that ultimately may improve nutrition and hopefully will increase the health and longevity of our patients with CF.
0: Doctor, thank you for sharing those insights, as well as for today's cases and discussion. I'd like to wrap things up now by reviewing the key points of our podcast in light of our learning objectives. Uh, So to begin, assessing exocrine pancreatic insufficiency and its effects on nutritional status.
1: The first question is, does someone truly have exocrine pancreatic insufficiency? I talked about how an initial fecal last phase, especially in an infant in the first three to six months of life, may not be truly diagnostic that fecal last days values can fluctuate during infancy, and that it is important to have follow-up values. The second point is that once you diagnose exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, you want to diagnose this as early as possible and intervene at that point. As I discussed, the sooner you appropriately nutritionally replete someone, the better the long-term outcome, both morbidities and mortality. You also want to treat effectively. You want to treat with the appropriate dose of PERT and control symptoms and prevent weight loss.
0: And our second objective strategies to improve nutritional status in patients with pancreatic
1: insufficiency. So it's a combination of both proper PERT dosing, effectively supplementing calories in addition to the 100 grams of fat per day. And lastly, addressing other causes of malnutrition that potentially are leading to weight loss or preventing appropriate weight gain.
0: And finally, the reasons for inadequate response to pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy.
1: We know that this is multifactorial. Foreseen pancreatic enzymes are not as effective as our own native enzymes. In addition, as a result of CF-related alterations in pH of the duodenum, File salt abnormalities, abnormalities affecting the intestinal epithelial cells that patients tend to suffer from malnutrition.
0: Dr. Stephen Friedman from the Harvard Medical School, thank you for participating in this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review podcast. Thank you so much. It's truly
1: been a pleasure to be part of this.
0: To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME CE credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. This activity has been developed for the CF care team, including pulmonologists, pediatric pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, pediatricians, infectious disease specialists, respiratory therapists, dieticians, nutritionists, pharmacists, nurses and nurse practitioners, physical therapists, and others involved in the care of patients with cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eCystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.esysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. The fibrosis review is supported by educational grants from ABVI, Gilead Sciences Incorporated, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing.